Hi, this is the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. Delighted to have uh, my friend and uh, partner in crime with uh, the Urban Guild, uh, Nathan Norris, joining me today. Nathan, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks so much for inviting me to your show. It's great to have you here. I think there's a there's kind of a wide range of things that I think we could cover today, but uh, uh, I, you know, I want to start out by uh, uh, first of all, I I know that you're old. Do you know how I know that you're old? If if I didn't know that you were old, <laughs> you have you have, because we probably share. <laughs> you have go ahead. You have one of those uh, Gmail addresses that is very simple that you know obviously had to be claimed in the initial years of having Gmail. That is true. That is true. <laughs> and I'm not going to give it out here um, on the, on the, on the air, but uh, just know that Nathan's got one of those very simple ones. And so I'm fortunate, you know, that I've got a unique enough name that I could just have my name be my Gmail. But uh, uh, I always know somebody who's been around long enough to have like an original Gmail address. Uh, Nathan, um, <laughs> We've known each other for a long time through the world of new urbanism and especially the CNU. Uh, but I think uh, for those who don't know you and, and the work that you've done, it, it, uh, and I, I know you've, like a lot of friends and colleagues of ours, you've had kind of a long and winding and uh, career that's not easily easy to explain. But why don't you talk a little bit about you know your background and, and how you got into the world of new urbanism? Sure. It's kind of a wacky story, but it, it started with uh, some investment advice my father gave me. And he said, you should research this company that's going to be building these new towns. You know, uh, that might be a good idea. And actually, at the time, I was in the Alabama Air National Guard, and I got sent away for my two weeks of annual training to England. And I showed up and reported for duty, and they actually said, sorry, we can't use you this week. We're physically moving our office this week, and next week we get a new boss. So just enjoy yourself. So I walked across the, 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 uh, the parking lot to the library, since I'm a nerd, and I started researching what would I do if I had to build a new town so that I can figure out whether I should invest in this new company that was all dedicated to that idea. And uh, having grown up around the Washington, D.C. area, I was familiar with the new towns of Reston, Virginia, and Columbia, Maryland. So I started typing in everything associated with them and everything that came back was talking about things I'd never heard about. Things like uh, new urbanism, traditional town planning, celebration, Kentland, seaside, things, places I'd never heard of. And so three days in is when I read something that really shocked me. And I read where it was illegal to essentially build Paris in the United States. And as an attorney, I thought that was crazy. Surely, and as a, a former active duty uh, uh, army officer, I was like, you know, I, I was trying to defend our country, the land of the free. And here I find out we're not even free to build cities. And so I became uh, completely obsessed with it. I had lived in housing, which reflected every decade since the 1890s. So everything I read about planning made complete sense to me at the time. And so I, I just... Couldn't, couldn't stop reading about it. I got back from England, immediately went on a 1,500-mile road trip with my wife to visit many of these places. And that's when I really decided, okay, that's what I should get involved with. I want to go ahead and help make it uh, 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 you know, legal or give people the freedom to build cities, towns, and villages again in, in the United States. Because I had thought about it from a legal perspective as how could we be the richest country the world has ever seen since World War II? 
um, and yet not build one single city. And so that's when I knew that there was something to it. And that's, that's really where my career started. And then along the way, I ended up, my first job was actually running marketing and uh, sales for a traditional neighborhood development that had been designed by our uh, colleagues over at DPZ. And uh, after that, I then started a uh, consulting company, which ultimately led uh, me to co-found a company called Placemakers in 2003. And uh, that took me up to the time when my kids were getting older and I thought it was important for me not to be on the road. So then I said, hey, you know what the cool thing now is to do is to run one of these downtown organizations. So I had the opportunity to go and run the downtown organization in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, and I did that for a number of years until my kids were tired of seeing me. And then at that point, I switched gears and said, okay, well, I'll go back into the consulting world. And that's where I've been for the past five years with the City Building Partnership. So that's the, the, the quick summary. It's a, it's a long and winding road. It's kind of a, it's, it's a repeat story for, for a lot of people that we know. I'm curious about, you know, when you did that, you talked about, you did that initial road trip after you became interested and you drove 1500 miles across the country to look at places. Where, where did you go? I basically uh, did a beeline for Florida and uh, to see the, the seaside uh, at that time, Rosemary beach was just coming out of the ground on 30A. Then I went all the way down uh, uh, through Florida to a lot of the projects that were going on there. I had not, I did not make it to Kentlands that weekend, but uh, I came back from the long Florida trip, uh, convinced that I was going to have to to go there. And then the weird thing was, uh, you know, when I got back to Birmingham uh, the next week, uh, the big media was talking about how this company called EBSCO was going to had just hired DPZ to to design a new traditional neighborhood development in Birmingham called Mount Laurel. And that's the project that I ultimately uh, got started with on my career. Interesting. So, you know, obviously that, that, that more than whetted your appetite and you, you made this really deep dive into, into the world of new urbanism. Uh, you know, I know with your legal background, that's been really different than, you know, most of the people we know who entered this world are probably more like me. They're, you know, architects, they're designers that came into it. I mean, how has that, uh, uh, how has that experience been being around a bunch of kind of, you know, strange designers, architects, planners, all that sort of thing, uh, you know, coming from a background that was not that at all? Well, I think it's fantastic. Um, you know, and, and you mentioned the, the Urban Guild before. That was all started primarily because I was upset that I knew all these really talented designers and they were horrible at marketing their services. <laughs> and I was like, more people in this country need these people's talents, but nobody knows about them because they're generally great at what they do. And so they don't have to market because people just call them up once they see what, what they've already done. So um, from a legal perspective, though, I, I did not have a background in, um, um, in uh, uh, real estate or anything like that as a lawyer. I was a commercial litigator, essentially defending consumer fraud class actions. So I had nothing to do with any of this. But I was just completely fascinated by the whole thing. And then about seven months in, my wife said, well, you better get a job within the next three months <laughs> or you got to. You got to cool your jets here. You got to you got to be happy just doing what you're doing. And I was happy practicing law, but I found this infinitely more fascinating. At the same time, as I learned more and more and more, 
I realized that the, 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 uh, the, the skills of becoming a, a really great designer are very different from those of uh, being an attorney. And I ended up realizing that I had a role to play in helping uh, bridge the gap between communication between designers and developers. And so that's really where most of my, uh, until I ran the Downtown Development Authority, that's where most of my uh, uh, work has come from, is helping developers figure out what to do and how to leverage the design talents of people who are in, in the Urban Guild and, and, and other talented designers. Yeah, and I want to talk more about that in a, in a little bit too, but I'm also curious, you know, over those years, did you, uh, did you ever actively get involved on the development side uh, as a participant in any projects with, um, you know, pursuing these goals or with clients or other people did um, did, did you take an active development role? No, I never took an active, I, I wanted to work for developers. I didn't want to be a developer. And part of that just stems from my own peculiar, you know, makeup in that I really enjoy, I, I do what I do because I love helping people. If I became the developer, I'd be helping myself primarily. And I don't, that just, that's not what gets me uh, energized. I really enjoy helping others. And so I was like, no, I don't want to take the risk. The other thing is, is if, if you're working for developers all the time, you can see how many issues are beyond the control of the developer. And so that it's a, it's a great challenge. And, but there's so many things beyond your control that that's not where my comfort zone is anyhow. Um, I did benefit, though, however, with my legal background, primarily because people in our industry are scared of attorneys. <laughs> you know, attorneys can, uh, from a developer standpoint, halt a project. They can create uh, real problems or even from the government perspective, they tend to respect the attorney somewhat more. So I had a little leg up on those non-designers in our movement who had a little harder time tr uh, trying to find opportunities and a niche to fill. Um, I was not the smartest guy uh, going into this, though. I will say this, is that, um, is, as we talked about before, I uh, helped co-found a company called Placemakers back in 2003. And it sprang from the fact that um, in order to succeed in the business, I needed to find really talented people who were already being hired by developers and cities. Because what I was doing was providing guidance, which... Uh, they were not actively seeking. A developer doesn't have a spreadsheet that says, pay someone to tell me how to be a better developer. They do have a spreadsheet that says, I need to hire an architect, I need to hire a, a marketing person, I need to hire an engineer, et cetera. And so uh, uh, that's sort of how that, that uh, operation came into being. You know, Placemakers is uh, interesting. Also that uh, you all sort of pioneered uh, the notion, almost the, the work from home notion before that was really a work from home thing because you guys were, you know, all over the country, even all across North America and, and forming teams and working together 20 years ago when not many people were doing that. Well, it's really funny to look back on it, uh, not just because it was how fast 20 years has passed, but Back in 2003, when I would get on a plane and explain how my business was set up, they looked at me like I was nuts. They were like, really? That sounds so interesting or something. Now, if you got on a plane and you said that, people would look at you like you're crazy if you thought that was interesting. So, it, yeah, times have changed, but we did do that. and We benefited greatly, actually, from that because when the downturn hit in 2008, 
we didn't have a office with big overhead. And then um, we also benefited from uh, a shift in work that went toward municipalities. So with our being virtual and the municipal work, it, we actually increased our business during that time uh, prior to what was going on previously. Yeah. And then uh, obviously a, a lot of our friends and colleagues have, uh, you've stayed in touch with and worked with over the years in and outside of placemakers. Uh, and uh, what, what's your, what's your relationship now with placemakers? Do you still do stuff with that team or are you still a sort of a key part of it? Uh, we have done some things together. So no, I'm not a key part. I had to step down when I left uh, at the beginning of 2013, when I took the job in uh, Lafayette. So I went ahead and stepped down from my role there um, permanently. But uh, since I came back into the world, we have collaborated on a couple of different projects. So no, I, I still think they're wonderful folks uh, doing good work. Um, I just decided once I uh, uh, decided to go back into consulting that I wanted just to be my uh, uh, my own show. Yeah. Um, uh, just to, for ease. And by that time, uh, that I guess I went back in 2018. I had established enough uh, friendships and working relationships to make that much easier than it would have been at the beginning of my career. So that's what I do today. Essentially, I, I you, some people equate it to like the Hollywood model and and uh, you know and making movies, and that instead of having the same cast for every project, um, I try to put together a cast that's perfectly suited for whatever that project needs. Yeah. So that's that's how my business model works today. So I know that, you know, you all over those years, uh, just talking about the placemaker experience a little bit, that you, you did a lot of planning work, uh, developers and cities, and you also did a lot of zoning code work, uh, a lot of spark code work. Um, what, what, I'm curious, like now that you've had that in your rear view mirror, you know, for a little while, like what's some of the, what are some of the experiences that really stand out or, or lessons learned from, from that type of consulting and, uh, working in that world, uh, which, you know, a lot of other people work in both small firms and very large firms. As regards the, the lessons that I really learned when I was at Placemakers was that, uh, especially when it had to do with uh, zoning codes, was the importance of calibrating a zoning code to those who are going to be using it. That's both developers and the people who are going to be administering it. There was sort of this enthusiasm for the codes early on that uh, really was all about, hey, let's create a great code for the community. And they looked at it more from the perspective of just the code itself and not the code as it would have to be implemented. So one of the lessons we learned pretty quick was that the developers and the administrators didn't want to use the code if it was not tailored to them. Meaning that from the administrative standpoint, they would rather have somebody go through their existing planned unit development zoning, which was easier for them to uh, to administer, than go through the smart code where they thought they might make a mistake. Hmm. Developers at the same time liked uh, the, uh, the, 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 the lower burden um, that was associated typically with a planned unit development as opposed to the smart code. So there were lots of smart codes adopted that actually didn't get much traction initially because they were overly complex. Uh, my, one of my uh, colleagues, Jeff Dyer, had a great way of putting it, which was there's uh, really three different things that impact um, the local calibration to a code. One is uh, what is the breadth of the code? How many things are covered in it? 
you know, how many topics are covered. And then there's the depth of the code, which is how deeply do you go into it? And then there's the geographic application of the code, which is how uh, does it apply to the entire region? Does it apply to a small neighborhood? And uh, calibrating those three things are really critical to allowing a code to be useful to a local community. And oftentimes there was a one size fits all approach of, oh, well, this is a great code. It was adopted in this other jurisdiction. Why don't you just adopt it? And that's not how it works. Right. So how did that square with, uh, and I know we're kind of getting into the weeds here a little bit in the form, form-based code world, but, you know, part of the, obviously part of the notion of the smart code was to try to have this universal code uh, that could be uh, adopted by cities and towns all over the place. And, uh, you know, that was really inspired by the fact that in the 1920s, these very simple zoning codes were were passed and adopted by thousands of municipalities all over the country at the same time. And I know initially the, you know, with uh, Andreas and others, the authors of the smart code, that the notion was to try to, tr- try to create a really simple uh, code that could be adopted everywhere. How did, do you feel like that that just is not doable or... How, how did that square with the experience you had working on the ground? The smart code itself is well suited for some places, but it's overly complex for many. It's much more complex than what they were dealing with in the 1920s. At the same time, we have people administering these codes, which have not been trained or educated and the details that make uh, the smart code super easy to deal with. So it's really apples and oranges. Some places it's perfectly suited and a lot of places it's not. The beauty of the smart code was that it's essentially open source. It was Mm -hmm. a gift to the world by Andres and DPZ to say, hey, we're gonna put out our template for how a code should work. And to me, that gives a, f- a wonderful foundation to make those determinations. What are we going to do? For example, uh, Jeff Dyer and I in Lafayette, we developed the, uh, with the assistance of Howard Blacks and the uh, downtown code for Lafayette, Louisiana. And when we did it, we said, okay, well, we're only going to uh, regulate 10 things. And those 10 things are going to have to be graphically illustrated on one page so everybody can see the 10 things on just one one-page uh, graphic. That was an effort at uh, simplifying the the zoning code for that area. And the reason was is because they didn't have that many rules that they had to follow to start mm-hmm. with. So if we were going to uh, make it super complex, there would have been pushback on it, and they would have watered down the key uh, elements of that code. Instead, we've got univer- we had universal support for the adoption of the code, and then we could focus on just making it easier for people to understand why we had those 10 rules um, in that code. And so, um, you know, so once again, but where did we get those 10 rules? They can all be found in the foundation mm-hmm. of the smart code. All we did is say, okay, well, is there an easier way to graphically represent it? And then is there, uh, do we have to twist that language in any way to make it apply particularly well in this context of Lafayette? What, what were some of those? Do you remember what, what the 10 rules were that you had in Lafayette? Yeah, they were simple things that, you know, the uh, the uh, the Congress for the New Urbanism has done a good job on the project for code reform. And a lot of that uh, project was all about simplifying things and talking about even what if we just change a few rules right now before you try to do a full form-based code. So they had to do with things that have to do with frontages, as an example. So 
um, uh, how much, uh, how many windows do you have that are, what, what percentage of your front building facade has to have windows? And then uh, to what degree do those windows need to be transparent? Um, we had uh, rules associated with how wide a building facade could be, because we know that undermines the vibrancy of a downtown if the building facades are too wide um, over and over and over. Um, we had, uh, uh, we eliminated any parking requirements unless the building was gonna be taller than five stories. So that was something. Hmm. We uh, designated that uh, when you built a new street, let's say, or actually you weren't building a new street, but when you retrofitted an existing street, that you had to have a walkway, which was ex at least five feet wide. Um, and so designating that, we, so those are some of the bigger things mm -hmm. I, I, that I remember off the top of my head. And while you were there, did you have the chance to uh, see many projects come through to use the code or, 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 <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. The answer is no, I didn't at the time. And that's because of our timing. Yeah. Um, for those who don't remember, uh, Lafayette had the largest unemployment rate in the United States in 2015, mm. which was the year after we adopted the mm. code. And so I only had one year after that. So I didn't get to see personally a lot, but now, yeah, now there's been development, uh, since the, uh, the oil economy has changed. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's that's what they're uh, but anyhow so no the code's still around um the uh and then master plans were done you know oftentimes the big issue with the zoning code is a lot of people want to get a zoning code before they even have agreed upon vision right. for the community i remember going to charleston one time and talking about zoning codes and they had a big debate over form-based codes and what i quickly realized was they weren't arguing over the code they were arguing over the vision that the code was based upon mm -hmm. And that's because visioning is the hardest step. And most people want to uh, just jump right over it because it's difficult. Yeah. It's you know, it takes a lot of time to do a good job of it. Yeah. And so when, when you were in Lafayette, you, I presume then you went through a pretty big visioning process before you got to the, the code itself. Yes. Um, they had, uh, and, but the way that I look at it, you know, we have probably a lot of planners listening uh, to this podcast and planners know a vision can be represented by a comprehensive uh, uh, plan, as an example. And uh, what we did is we went ahead and created essentially a plan for the downtown, but it was unusual in the following respects. First of all, it was intended to be what I call a cocktail conversation plan, which I think every community should have a business plan. I, I, you don't need a comprehensive plan but, uh, for a vision. You need a business plan for how is your community going to move forward. So that's really what I wanted. And because they enjoy drinking <laughs> in Lafayette, Louisiana, the home of Cajun culture, which is some of the most fun people you'll ever run across, um, I figured, okay, I need to be able to articulate our downtown plan within five minutes or less. And so that meant we were only going to have one goal. Oftentimes, comprehensive plans have multiple goals. We only had one goal for the downtown. And then we limited ourselves to five different initiatives. And the whole idea was, is if you can explain your one goal and five initiatives in five minutes, you're much more likely to get support from those who otherwise don't care about the downtown. And so that was our approach. And that's what I recommend to clients today is, you know, you can do your comprehensive plan. A lot of states require them. There are good things that you can do. But more importantly, get a business plan that represents the consensus uh, in your community on how to move forward and talk about what are the key few items 
that really have to be addressed immediately in order to make progress. Don't worry about making everything work right away. Just where are you going to start and what are you going to do? Yeah, I think that's great advice. I mean, it, it, honestly, I'd probably build off of that and say, don't even sweat your comp plan that much. Um, you know, we've all, we've all worked on them. Uh, you're right. They're, they're all, most places they're state required. You've got to do it, but, uh, it seems like cities, especially city planners tend to lean too much into those documents, which are very, very broad and very few citizens really pay much attention to when they really want to know what's going to happen in my neighborhood or my downtown or, or whatever, whatever the specific area is. Right. Which gets back to the original issue we were discussing, which is the code should be a reflection of the vision. Um, I remember uh, one of the public planners I respected the most was Rick Bernhardt, mm -hmm. um, who's from Nashville. And when he got to Nashville, I think he realized he had 40 different council members. So he realized it was not going to be easy to adopt one big code. And so what he set out to do is he created his design center there in Nashville and said, we're going to come up with a vision for uh, uh, essentially every neighborhood. And then we're going to code, create a code for that neighborhood that shares the terminology with the other places in town. But each each neighborhood was going to have their own special code to implement the vision. I think that's a great approach. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but oftentimes you get pushback from the, the administrative people who say, well, that might be too complex. Um, I, I don't think it uh, has to be, um, especially if you're just focusing on the most important items, not every little item. As an example, back on that code in downtown Lafayette, we removed all the landscape regulations, which in some places people say, what do you mean you remove the landscape? Well, we removed the landscape regulations as uh, essentially a negotiation with the development community about, well, we want you to get these other things right. You're going to have an interest in landscaping your you know, what you build anyhow. We don't have to tell you how to do it, and that's that was appreciated. So, yeah, and especially in a more urban uh, environment, a more downtown environment, it's probably going to be the the city or a business improvement district or a community improvement district of some kind that's probably going to take more ownership of the public landscape anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, you know, thinking about that and Rick Bernhardt's, you know, approach and then you know, yours in, in microcosm in Lafayette, uh, you know, that's something that we've talked about for years. And th the pushback is kind of funny because the reality of what happens with a lot of cities who don't take that approach and really most cities don't take that approach uh, to really do sort of, you know, micro plans for their neighborhoods and then code, you know, by neighborhood or by area and instead, what you get is you get these really huge, unwieldy uh, zoning codes that end up uh, having to be modified project by project anyway, uh, you know, depending on what comes through, because nothing really is tailor made to whatever uh, the development community is coming up with. Right. And so, but, you know, as you know, the whole process, whether it's real estate development or it's just how the public works, it's all it ultimately boils down to politics in the United States. We set up the system to be guided by uh, uh, politics. And to me, the way that you make it easier is, you know, it's the, the notion of just ratcheting down um, the authority um, to the smallest mm -hmm. increment. And really, you know, I shouldn't be telling how people need to live on the other side of town. I remember when we were in Starkville, Mississippi, and we were coming up with a downtown zoning code. And uh, we had some uh, uh, folks who were libertarians who came in and said, well, we don't think there should be any rules, so we're against this code. And I asked them, well, where do you live? And they said, well, we live out on the outskirts of town. 
I said, well, isn't that great that you get to live the way that you want to? And I said, well, you know, there's some, don't you think there's some people who'd like to live in the downtown? I said, yeah, but that's not me. There's too many rules. I said, well, don't you realize that you can't have a downtown if you don't have rules because mm -hmm. everybody's, you know, uh, so close to one another. Everybody has to work off the same page. And once they realized that they were denying the freedom of people to live in an urban setting, that's when the light switch went off for them and they realized, oh, okay, so long as we just keep that in the places where people want to uh, live an urban lifestyle, then we're cool with it. Just don't bring it out to where we live. And I said, well, yeah, of course not wouldn't make any sense where you are anyhow. So, uh, so I think that's an important consideration. Yeah. Yeah. But we have a, we, we tend to have a hard time of like, we want to paint everything with a broad brush and instead of really learning to, to plan, you know, area by area. And that was, that was obviously something the, the transect gave us early on and, and was then uh, translated into, into zoning codes. You know, um, Nathan, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, you know, you, you hit on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, coming from your background, I, I know that uh, messaging uh, and explaining things to the general public in a way they can understand has always been a big deal for you. And it's something you've always been really good at. Uh, and so talk, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about that and the importance of messaging overall when it comes to planning and development projects, uh, but also just ways in which we often get it wrong when, and especially when architects, planners, et cetera, start working with the public or talking to the public. Right. Um, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm currently in the midst of working with a, a colleague on a, uh, what we're calling with, with, without it being a great name, the benefits communication tool. And essentially what it does is it digests all the different core benefits of a well-planned areas into a series of categories that can be called values. They'd be things like, um, uh, value, it would be uh, convenience or saving time, it would be freedom or choice, you know, all these big concepts, and then articulating them indiv individually. The reason why we needed that tool was because every place is a little different from another place. And what is important in to one audience may not be important to another audience. And so instead of saying, this is how you should communicate, uh, the benefits of taking this approach. Instead, we just came uh, come up with this tool where you can make your own local decisions about what do people care about the most and then shift your messaging with an articulation of what those benefits are um, and the, or the order that makes it most effective for your community. So um, once again, what flies, you know, we, we can pick easy examples like what flies in Berkeley, um, um, uh, California, may not fly in Lake County, Florida, okay? And so customizing uh, what it is you're trying to do into terms that your community cares about, I think is the, the most important thing and, and foundational thing. So I'm always concerned about that, but obviously I was uh, involved in litigation. So I always had to sort of say, well, how do I best frame this issue to the audience, whoever it may be? Does that make sense or am I no, getting it wrong? makes total sense. And, you know, it's, it's something I know, I think we kind of share uh, an interest in that regard and just, you know, how we're always talking about the, the issues that we care about. And, uh, you know, we have a tendency, uh, especially, I, I'm sure every profession has their own jargon and their own language. I know they do. Um, but w we certainly in our world have a, tense, a tendency to really get into some very wonky 
uh, jargon. Um, architects are notorious for that. There was always, you know, the architect language bingo card that you could pull out and, you know, play with the different <laughs> terms that, you know, architects might use in a presentation. But uh, it's, uh, it's definitely an issue that, you know, I think one thing, one fun anecdote that I remember, one of the very first charrettes that I ever did, probably back in 99, and that was with, you know, our, our colleague, John Anderson. And when, when planners or, or designers would start uh, basically talking about something that they were doing uh, to the public, uh, he would immediately stop people and just shout, you know, jargon alert, uh, and then have, have them explain some term that they had just used that really made no sense except to the actual the designers working on the project. Right. As an example, you know, I've never used the term new urbanism to describe what we're doing. And yet the principles of new urbanism, you know, are very much part and parcel of most everything. Yeah, so how, so how, how right? do you talk about it? What, what do you use instead? It depends upon where I am, but usually um, it comes down to um, a simple explanation of, well, you know, the way that we uh, designed and laid out our cities before World War II, just accommodating essentially cars and vehicles um, that were not always accommodated before World War II. Mm -hmm. And that's that's an easy way to describe it to some people. Other places I'd say, well, it's traditional town planning. Um, that's another way to describe it. Um, if I want to get sort of jargony and sort of advocacy uh, driven, then I might talk about how, well, we have the two ways of building out the United States, certainly. And that is we can either make it for a, a drive only environment or I have to drive everywhere to do anything other than sleep or stay in my house. Or I can create a place that is not only uh, drive able, but it's walk able, it's bike able, it's transit able. And that may be another way, depending upon my audience, uh, how I, I, I position those two different development mm -hmm. models. So Nathan, where, where do you find yourself working these days? And, and what talk a little bit more about the types of projects or clients you're working with. Yes, I work all over the country at different scales. Essentially, I didn't realize this until er, uh, last week. I was at the National Town Builders Association meeting in Virginia Beach, which is just filled with a collection of brilliant, fascinating people. And I was having these multiple conversations. I finally realized that my career uh, path largely just followed whatever was pissing me off at the time. <laughs> so at first I was pissed off that we couldn't build a city or a town in the United States. And so that sort of sent me on a certain uh, trajectory. And then I remember I got upset with how we design and plan our schools. So I came up with that smart growth schools report mm -hmm. card thing. And then I got upset with um, how uh, designers produce plans for neighborhoods. So everything has sort of been a, a, you know, what is the problem that needs to be fixed? That's sort of where my head goes. Um, more recently, um, I've been uh, over the last several years helping multiple clients with uh, trying to create super cool villages um, on large recreational lakes. Hmm. And in the United States, you may know that most of our large recreational lakes were built after World War II or, or you know, close. Mm -hmm. they, they're essentially pretty old. And uh, oftentimes all the zoning only allowed like big, at least one acre lots around them. And as we, those lakes have matured, everybody's like, this is getting kind of boring. I see this, just one house 
every, you know, every so often, and it, it gets kind of boring. Wouldn't it be cool if we had something to do? So some of the large landowners reached out uh, to, to me and said, hey, can you help us envision how we can create an amenity for the entire lake? I was like, yeah, you need a town village. Okay. And so um, I've focused a lot of my developer side of my work on that over the last several years. And now we've got a project in North Texas on the the first large uh, uh, lake in uh, Texas in 30 years. Hmm. It's a 16,000 acre lake and nothing has been developed on it. And we're one of the first uh, development teams to come forward. Um, and what we're trying to do is emulate essentially a European village. So we're looking at the precedents, uh, not only in Europe, but Las Catalinas in Costa Rica and projects uh, along 30A like Rosemary Beach, which is a good analogy to what would be happening. Um, so that's at the development scale. Yeah. The other thing that I work on is uh, on the municipal level or on a county level. So when I was talking about, oh, create a business plan and then you do the code, I'm working with a, a community in Florida right now at the county scale uh, where we're trying to, to work through that process. And so that's it's exciting once again to be able to help them um, this way because they realize that all the tools they've been told they need aren't producing the results they want when they actually look at, well, the county next door did that and what happened? Right. Okay, it didn't slow anything down. Because as you know, the way we finance um, what we build really has a huge impact upon what gets built. And if you're financing things the same way and building the same things, you can come up with all these other tools over here and it doesn't really matter. That's why I say the business plan or the vision for your community is the most important thing. And then the third thing that I should mention is all the stuff I don't get paid for that I find fascinating. And that's just working out um, uh, uh, essentially uh, basic things. Like the most exciting thing this past year has been working with uh, Paul Crabtree on the notion of how do you design lovable streets? And how if I started just with the notion that, hey, I've got a street to build, what are the different considerations that I need to take into account? Why should I, anyone even care what it's about? What is the purpose of streets? Uh, what are the different elements of the streets? What are my options as far as all those elements? And why has it been so difficult to get good streets built? What are those obstacles and how do you overcome them? So just answering those basic questions that ultimately come from my, my legal background of cross-examining somebody is like, well, why is this? Why is that? So doing those things, and we've done that on buildings and on neighborhoods, on illustrations, um, and now on the communication thing I told you about, I spend a lot of time just uh, having fun doing that. And then I always make a mistake, according to my wife, of saying, yes, I'll put on another magical mystery tour, yeah. which is the intensive tour right before the Congress for the New Urbanism that we do. And that takes up a lot of time. Well, talk, That's what I've been doing. E explain that just for a minute for anybody not familiar and, and how long you've been doing the magical mystery tour. Yeah, the magical mystery tour, um, it goes back over a decade. And what it is, is it's a two to four day tour before the annual uh, uh, CNU Congress. And what we do is we just speed date places where we actually, instead of spending a ton of time at each place, we spend a relatively modest amount of time. And we did this with you hosting. I remember when we went to uh, Kansas City, but uh, essentially you spend about a, a, an hour, maximum two hours at a place. And then what we're really touring are the lessons to be learned from it. And so what happens is we tour that place and we jump back on the bus and then we all start uh, debating what are the top lessons that we should be able to take away from it. And what's marvelous about it 
is you immediately get humbled. No matter how much you think you know, you get on that bus and you realize somebody who's never studied any of this sees something you didn't see. And so it's a wonderful place to learn about places. And what's the uh, schedule of the tour uh, this year? Oh, this year, it's going to be a three-day tour. The first day is going to be in the Washington, D.C. region. The second day is going to be going uh, crisscrossing Virginia. And then the third day is going to be uh, North Carolina until we hit Charlotte. Yeah. And are you are you all full up? We've pretty much had to yeah make, uh, we've sort of had to close out registration. So unless somebody begs really hard and we figure out how to logistically get over it, yeah, we're we're booked uh, this yeah. year. Well, it's something to keep in mind for, for future years for anybody anybody interested who might be attending uh, the Congress for New Urbanism, or even if you're not, it's a, it's a, it's a great tour. I want to talk a little bit about the, you really uh, got my attention with the Lake Town uh, projects that you're working on. It's funny because this has just been, it's been a side interest uh, of mine uh, for a long, long time that I, uh, I I had a chance just before the recession to work on, uh, on a plan for one of the local Lake communities in the Kansas City area, you know we have the we have the same situation that probably uh, a, a lot of cities have that we have all of these little lake oriented communities around our metro. They're all man made, um, almost all built like you said after World War II, and almost all built and designed in the same fashion, which is that uh, you have a you have a ring road that goes around the lake with lots that back up to the lake. And then you have lots across the street that they have a hard time giving away. And uh, I, ha- I had a chance, I, so like I said, about 2007 or eight, I worked with a guy for one of the lake communities. There was a portion here that was uh, undeveloped. And we did something like what you were talking about that, you know, well, let's make a town. Let's make a village on the water here. And everybody was really excited about it. And then the recession hit and, and it didn't come to pass. But, you know, one of the things I remember he taught me was not only did every uh, lake community in our area have that same design feature, uh, but they had all gone bankrupt at least once, if not two or three times. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that was simply a function of the fact that they they couldn't create any value for all of those other lots that were across the street that weren't lakefront lots. Uh, and it's, it's remarkable that so few people have picked up uh, on a, an alternative way to do these. Yes, um, that's true. But it's it just, you got to remember where they're located often isn't in the middle of a city. They're on the outskirts yeah. and a little ways away. There hasn't been a lot of development pressure in those communities. They've been able to keep selling lakefront lots, you know, and as they sell more and more, they become more expensive because there's fewer available. And that's when they, rec- you know, that's when they recognize, oh, I wish we had more cool places that we could go. Um, uh, during this time. And then the local municipal. So I think it's a new thing. Those municipalities oftentimes don't even have planners right. in a lot of places where we've gone. And so uh, they, they haven't been thinking about it. But it started with large landowners, actually, who were trying to understand how to tap into the non-waterfront uh, property uh, and how to increase its value. And obviously, the only way you can do that is through a connected town. Right, right. Um, yeah, and it, so I hope I hope you have some success. I'm going to follow the one in Texas closely. Uh, I have a, I still hold on to one dream that I want to do some version of a town like that on uh, Lake of the Ozarks or one of the lakes in um, southern Missouri, northern Arkansas area, because there's just there's really nothing. I mean, there are incredible areas to go to, and the lakes are wonderful, but they're they all lack that 
that sort of village uh, feel or charm that you might have in in other beachfront type communities. Right. And, uh, you know, to give you an example, essentially, we did three years worth of work with one client who owns a huge, gigantic amount of land. But they're not primarily in the land business. Remember, a lot of people who control land on these lakes are not about being developers. Yeah. They're about being stewards of either a, a, a water authority mm -hmm. or a power uh, district of some sort that's generating hydroelectricity. Yeah. And so those folks really aren't into development. So they haven't been pushing it. More importantly, is they tend to have really great retirement programs, <laughs> which means that anything that's a little controversial is something that they'd like to avoid. So they haven't been in a big rush to do something for fear that it might um, backfire in some way or it might be difficult. The one in Texas is done by uh, just an entrepreneurial developer. And that's why they've, they've been going fast. But I think they're within about an hour of 7.75 million people. So uh, they've got a pretty good opportunity yeah. to reach market there. Unlike when you look at 30A, they were four and a half hours away. Yeah. From their closest target market. Yeah, no kidding. And you know, one of the things that we've seen, you know, I know a couple of the lakes here that come to mind too. They're they're also core of engineers facilities, and so there are extreme limitations on what you can do anywhere near uh, the the shoreline itself. That's right, but that's sort of changing. I, I actually spoke with the the town founder of uh, Carlton Landing, Grant Humphreys, last weekend, and he was saying how he was asked to speak. It, uh, some big conference uh, of uh, folks coming together uh, with the core and that how the core was uh, essentially identifying Carlton Landing is a great national model on how to deal with uh, lakes in a certain mm -hmm. way. But obviously to them, what matters is water quality and not adjusting the volume of the water in the lake. And, and I think it's important um, in order to preserve land, in order to concentrate development. Our immediate um, in North Texas, our immediate uh, model was Lake Como, Italy. Hmm. And what you see in those old places is they concentrated the development into these towns, which made sense back in how they lived then. And uh, that makes it a lot more cool than at the lakes where they allow development around the entire ring of a lake, but it's all at the scale of an acre right. or something. And it gets incredibly boring and it eats up all everything. And then you've got septic systems up and down the line everywhere that can't be controlled as well as a centralized sewer system that can now be built anywhere. That's the other big change, uh, just to be clear, is that we develop most of our recreational lakes in the United States because of uh, the limitations of septic. Hmm. Today, now it's no big deal to put in a sewer package plant that's just a, a, a decentralized wastewater system at, a low, uh, at the scale of a neighborhood. And so now the environmentalists and the core and uh, water authorities in different states they prefer that. And so I think we've got a better model and a better opportunity to make this more common. That's, that's really encouraging. So I look forward to following that more and kind of seeing how that goes. And, and, uh, and hopefully we can see more interesting developments along those lines. Um, Nathan, one of the other things that I'm sure you don't make a ton of money doing is your involvement with the uh, Urban Guild. And uh, I know several years ago, you really helped get involved uh, and, and herd the cats together to to make that organization function again. Why don't you talk for a minute about what, what the heck the Urban Guild is and, and why it's important? That's a great question. First of all, the Urban Guild is a group of about 65 members. They're designers, except for me. Hmm. 
And uh, that's only because I co-founded it with Steve Muzon, who was a designer. And so I haven't been kicked out of the band yet um, uh, that I started, you know, a common theme. But the uh, uh, it's about 65 members. It's merit-based. So you have to be voted in based upon the body of work that you have. And what it is, is a collection of designers, whether they're urban designers, architects, or even engineers, who understand traditional urban design, meaning how do we lay out communities the way that we used to, and then also are people who understand traditional architecture. So you don't have to necessarily practice traditional architecture, but you have to understand and appreciate it, and you have to understand and appreciate traditional uh, urban design. Now, once that said, it is an organization that's dedicated to not only highlighting its members' work, but highlighting the work of anybody who is uh, sort of supporting its ideals of traditional architecture and urbanism. So we have an awards program every year that celebrates those people, whether they're guild members or outside the guild, uh, that you can look to the website urbanguild.org uh, and uh, uh, look at those awards. The other thing that uh, this group does is they share, okay? And that's somewhat rare um, in, in some sort of design circles, but these people are really dedicated to sharing for the advancement of the art. Essentially, these people represent that small minority who are not trained how to do what they do in school. They found out for the most part how to do it outside of school and they've had to fight their, their uh, local or, uh, AIA organizations for recognition for the type of work they do, which oftentimes within architect circles has been um, not celebrated, let's say. And so this is a place where they can come together and not only celebrate the work of each other, but then more importantly, try to advance the art. So these are people who tend to be, uh, have the humility, of, uh, humility to build upon the work of others, and they have the generosity to share it, uh, what they're doing with others just to advance um, um, uh, the art so that we can build more lovable places. Yeah, well, and, and I'm an architect and, and I'm a guild member, so I'll just, I can even say it more directly. <laughs> really, a lot of the work of uh, the people that are in the guild is just, you know, it's largely ignored by the profession. And there's, uh, for whatever reason, the, the bias that people have, there's just a, a willing, a desire to pretend that a lot of it doesn't even exist. So. Uh, I, I mean, I think the, the practitioners we have in the guild and I, I very rarely design, uh, buildings anymore. So I, I'm not really one who's actively, you know, participating in, in, in a lot of the work, but, uh, the designers are really pretty incredible and it's, it's really a great, great group of folks. And, uh, for anybody who has a chance to, to go look at the work or urbanguild.org, if you, uh, if you're in the world of development and design and want to get some ideas from, from people who are not getting published in Dwell Magazine or uh, whatever else uh, comes out in the architecture world, it's it's really a great uh, it's a great resource. Um, Nathan, let's also talk about since we're since we're talking about the guild, what um, what all is up for CNU thirty one in Charlotte, which is coming up here towards the end of end of the month, and the guild's role in trying to educate and work within uh, the confines of the CNU. Uh, that's a great question. Um, as you know, we've uh, uh, the CNU has worked with us to provide us two full days of programming, um, and that's based upon an ongoing, you know, ever since uh, uh, around 2018, the CNU has done a great job of accommodating a full range of educational 
uh, slots for the guild to focus on what we do best, which is design. And this year is going to be no different. So what we'll do is we'll have a series of uh, sessions that are essentially designed um, uh, for what we would call sort of our 101s on how you how you sh uh, can build a lovable building or a, we're going to have the lovable streets presentation that I referenced before that hasn't been given before at the uh, at the Congress. We're going to go ahead and have uh, interviews of uh, 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 some interesting folks who are doing interesting work. We've got Andres Tuani who's going to talk about uh, the future of cities and the specifically the linear city um, and how how that relates to how we might be redeveloping certain areas here in the United States. Um, and then we're going to have uh, plenty of what we call uh, just in-house show and tells. And show and tells is just an opportunity for some leading practitioners to share their work with uh, other uh, with, with everyone in 15 to 20 minute um, um, presentations. And so these are the sorts of people, once again, th these people are uh, amazingly talented. So just to be able to sit and learn what they've been doing is usually inspirational for those who are trying to figure out how can they make uh, their uh, community better. Uh, at least from my perspective, I think it's really wonderful. What do you think we should be focused on, Kevin? At the, uh, you know, or did I leave something? No, out? I think that's good. I think one of the things in general I, that I like about uh, what we've what we've done at least the last couple of years, and what the Urban Guild in general has done, is it helps to focus uh, attention on people and topics that aren't normally discussed broadly, uh, and. Uh, obviously with a, with a really strong emphasis on design. Uh, and so going back, you know, we're old enough now that we were kind of veterans of CNU uh, and the, the various Congresses over the years. But, you know, certainly in the older days, it was, it was very, very highly focused on design. And then that changed, you know, over time. And it's, it, there's a, a whole suite of other issues uh, that happen. And that, that happens, I guess, as organizations mature, uh, and, and grow and bring in, you know, more people. But I think for anybody who is a CNU person and really wants to get that flavor of design and, and, and I think also just a place where you find people who might embrace more controversial topics and things that aren't as broadly discussed as part of the conversation. I think it's, it, it's a good place for those things. Well, yeah, like, uh, we've got a session on the impact of AI mm -hmm. on design moving forward. Yep. And that's going to be pretty cool. It'll be interesting. Don't you think? It'll be interesting. Yes, I'm <laughs> going to lead that session, but uh, and I still have some homework to do on it. But uh, yeah, I think there's an opportunity. Look, it's a big topic uh, in the world broadly, and it's it's going to have a huge impact on uh, our world, uh, our cities, our towns, uh, the way people work. And uh, I think it's it. I think we need to talk about it and and not just uh, pretend that this is something that's not happening. So that's yeah. right. And next, you know, if you can't make this year. There's going to be next year in Cincinnati, yep. which is going to be pretty cool, yep. where we'll delve into things. Is You'd think that, you know, at the National Town Builders Association, where the developers meet who, who do the sort of work the guild members design, it's fascinating to see how many people are just like the, the amount of complexity and how you design a alley. It's just staggering yeah. the different ways to do it. And so when you start getting into that, that nitty gritty detail, if you don't have good designers, you can really mess up how things operate. Yeah. You know, but yeah. So All right. for the any game. other questions? I Kevin? think that's it for now. I just have one closing thing, Nathan, which is uh, 
This is the Messy City podcast, so I like to ask each of our guests to to think of about about a place that has sort of a messy, organic, you know, bottom up nature to it that you love. It could be a neighborhood, could be a city or town that comes to mind. But but something when when we talk about those ideas or ideals, uh, what's a place that resonates with you? Well, I I think it's the place that I walk my dog around. I live in a neighborhood. Uh, that I was actually on the development team for. And uh, it was one of those where the developer refused to enforce all of their rules. And so everything that was done here was done as like we had to preempt something bad from happening, but the builders didn't have to follow any rules. And so there's a lot, when you say messy, I just walk around with my dog saying, how did that happen? And why did why couldn't it be like this? And why couldn't it be like that? So I live in a messy neighborhood, even though it's only less than 20 years old. Yeah. So yeah. that's my favorite one. Right Fantastic. Now. All right, Nathan, thanks again for, uh, for joining me here today. And uh, I'll see you pretty soon in Charlotte. Fantastic. Thanks right. so much, Kevin. I appreciate it.